Well, good morning again, Westmount, and it's truly a blessing and a privilege to be back in God's house, and it's great to see the old faces, and for those who are joining us for the first time, not old in terms of age, come on. (laughs) The familiar faces, is that better? The familiar faces. But if you're joining us for the first time, we welcome you and we're, we hope that you've already been blessed and that you've come ready to receive a word from the Lord and with open hearts and open minds to hear what God has to say to you this morning. Franz Joseph Hayden was present at the Vienna, Hall, or Vienna Music Hall where his oratory, the creation, was being performed. Weakened by age, the great composer was confined to a wheelchair. And as the majestic work moved along and the audience was caught up with a tremendous emotion of awe and inspiring, inspiring and just being inspired by this musical presentation. And when the passage, and there was light, was reached, the chorus and the orchestra burst forth with such power that the crowd could no longer restrain their enthusiasm about this presentation. The vast assembly rode spontaneously to applaud the rendition. Hayden struggled to stand up. He motioned for the audience to be quiet. He motioned for them to be silent. And having and doing this with his hand pointed to the heaven, pointed to God, he said, no, no, not me. Not me, not for me, but from thence comes all. What he was doing here, the, the audience was aspiring this beautiful rendition. They were aspiring glory to him. They were recognizing the greatness of the word that he had just done. And this individual, knowing what the Bible requires of him as a true worshiper of God, knows that all worship is directed to God, and that is exactly, that is precisely what Hayden did. He told the audience, this does not belong to me. This praise that you're offering doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. Having given the glory, the praise to his creator, he fell back into his chair exhausted. Psalm 100, the passage that we're going to look at, is described as the jewel in the Psalter. So it is like the crown of the entire Psalm. It is a literary masterpiece of singing with spiritual vitality. And through this psalm, through Psalm 100, we as God's people, and for those who are here and are not saying, you are being called, but for we who are God's people, through this psalm, we are called to enter into the presence of God based on the revelation that God has given to us in his word. 
This psalm also makes our worship an end, not a means to an end. The heart of worship is expressed in verse 4 in this psalm where the psalmist says, Bless his name and be thankful to him. And many commentators describe Psalm 100 as a hymn that may have served as a procession going towards the temple in Jerusalem in a festival. And this is can come from this conclusion comes from the phrases enter into his gates and into his courts with praise. The date is unknown, the author is unknown, but that doesn't matter and should matter to us. It's God's word, it's in the word of God, and we know that it was inspired by God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The psalm moves from praise in God's presence in verses 1 to 3 to praise in God's palace in verses 4 and 5. So from praise in God's presence to praise in God's palace. And we will get and unpack those two demarcation momentarily. But what I want to present to us this morning is that the psalm, I believe, tells us Four things. The psalm tells us how we worship. It tells us who we worship. It tells us why we worship and where we worship. Let us look at this psalm together as we sung it earlier, but let us read it. The psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures, and his faithfulness to all generation. Father, we are so grateful and so privileged to be able to gather in this fashion freely to open your word and to hear what you have written to us and how we ought to apply this to our lives. And I pray, God, that we will listen with attentive ears, attentive hearts. God, may your word reach the inner parts of our being and change our lives for your glory and for your honor. And may we get a better sense of how we are to worship, why we worship, knowing the one whom we worship. Lord, I pray that your spirit will lead, guide, and direct as we enter into a time of your word. For Christ's sake, amen. How do we worship And I'm pretty sure that you already have the answer to this question or or the the, the know-it-all to this phrase as to how we are to worship and how we should worship. But let us, based on this psalm we have in front of us, we are going to unpack this phrase or this thought of how we worship. And knowing what worship means or what worship is and how we are to worship 
are two essential, two very essential acts, are elements in the acts of our worship. What worship is and how we worship are very instrumental in our acts of worship. And the psalmist here, and I'm sure you will have picked up on this, is a very familiar psalm. He's not just making a suggestion. He's not just being suggestive in, the, in how we worship and the where and who and the why of our worship. He is making, he's giving us commands here. He's laying down imperatives. In fact, if you do an intricate study, you'll see that there are seven commands given in this very short passage of Scripture as to how we are to worship. And the first thing he says to us is, make a joyful noise. Now, I'm sure that you've heard many a times, especially for those of us, and I'm including myself in this, that aren't very musically inclined in terms of having a singing voice. And we love to jump on this psalm and say, hey, I'm just making a joyful noise to the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's how the psalmist tells us that we are to worship, make a joyful noise. But what does this make a joyful noise mean? This is a shout. This is a shout of triumph. Or, in other words, it's used as a battle cry as well as you'll see in Psalm 95 verse 1. And in Psalm 95 verse 1, it commands us to cry out, to shout, to make this joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So you and I, Westmount, are called to a boisterous expression as you and I engage in the act of worship. And this, as you saw in the text, is not just Israel in the context of our passage, but it's commanding everyone, all the earth, to shout boisterously, to shout with triumph, to shout for joy to the God of our salvation. He says, make a joyful noise. That's the first how of our worship. He also says, serve with gladness. God looks at the heart, and I know that he's stating the obvious. He doesn't look at the outward expression. We are inclined to do that because we can't penetrate, we can't see the heart of man. So when this boisterous act of worship is being displayed, this boisterous act should be one that comes with joy. So behind this boisterous, this triumphant shout, God expects us to do so with joyfulness. He expects us to do so with gladness. He expects us to do so with a heart of gratitude. It's not just putting on a show. It's not just making noise for the sake of making noise or making joyful noise. Worship the Lord with a rejoicing heart. Worship the Lord with a heart of joy, with a heart of gratitude. With This ought to be our attitude when we're worshiping. This is how we worship God, with a rejoicing heart. And this joyful noise must and has to come from this joyful heart. 
That's where we are getting this boisterous, this triumphant cry from, with a gratitude, a heart of gratitude, with a heart that is bubbling and overflowing with joy. And we're going to see why we ought to be joyful momentarily. Worship the Lord. With, serve him with gladness. The, serve, the word that is used here for serve, it means to minister. And it's a priestly language in the context where the priest is ministering, presenting himself before God on a daily basis. And if this to you sounds like familiar language, you might be thinking, where have I heard this before? Well, Paul talks about this very thing in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you, I compel you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship or service. This is what the psalmist is saying here, folks. This is the same kind of attitude that we're presenting ourselves to God on a daily basis for the sake and in the act of worship. So we make a boisterous shout, we serve with gladness, but we also come with singing. So this is what follows a joyful heart. This shout of triumph now turns into singing through music. And this is how this joy that is in our hearts is expressed and ought to be expressed. Some hum, some whistle when they're joyful, when they're excited, when they're happy. Songs were how God's people expressed their joy and their excitement and their gladness and their triumph. And this is what the psalmist is expecting and calling us and commanding us to do. But let me just say this. Songs should not create the joy. Songs should not create the serve with gladness. Songs should not make us shout for joy. We should already come with that attitude. And the songs that we're singing that we just sung, that we sung last week, is an expression, folks, of what is already happening in our hearts. Because there are people who come and they wake up Sunday morning. I hope Jeremy sings some really amazing songs this morning so I can feel good. That is not the right attitude for worship. You have the wrong mentality if that's how you wake up on a Sunday morning. Because the songs that you sing should be a reflection of what's happening inside already. And that is what the psalmist is saying here. Come with singing. Come with singing. And the final how of worship is approach God with thanksgiving and praise. So we shout boisterously, we serve gladly, and we sing joyfully and melodiously. And now we're being thankful. Now we're being gracious or being Showing gratitude towards God. Once again, this speaks of the heart of worship and the attitude of your worship. 
And this time, that attitude ought to be one of gratitude, thankfulness. This heart of worship comes from a transformation that is, has already taken place. And this kind of worship is one where you're bragging. This is what the psalmist is saying. You're boasting like Paul says, God forbid that I should boast or glory except in the cross. This is what it boils down to in your how of worship. You're bragging about the God whom you serve. Not because of what you have done. Not because of who you are and what you have accomplished. But because of the God whom you serve and who he is in his being. You're boasting, you're bragging about that, and you're thankful, you're bursting with thankfulness and praise because you're worshiping the God of gods. This is how the psalmist expects his readers to approach their God, his God, in worship. And folks, the same is expected of us. The same is expected of you and I when we worship. And this is how we worship. Make a joyful night. Shout boisterously. Shout with triumph. Come with singing. Serve with gladness and be thankful in your hearts. That is how you worship. So we get to the next phrase, and this is who we worship, which is obvious for us as believers, blatantly obvious, and I could just bypass this point. I won't. We've established how we worship, so now let us for a few moments reflect on the object of our worship. So who are we worshiping? Who are you worshiping? And as I said, that is obvious that we're worshiping the self-existent God. We're worshiping Yahweh. We're worshiping the God who is. He is the object of your worship or should be the object of your worship. This is the God who revealed himself to you. To, him, to us through his word. He reveals himself in a name that reveals his power. He reveals his presence with his people. He reveals his authority among his people. And in case you missed it, and you can count it if you so desire, you can go home and reread this. But in case you missed this, I don't know if you were noticing when I was reading the hymns, I was emphasizing that 17 times there's references to God in five verses. So just in case you think worship is about you, think again. 17 times in five verses, it's about God. Never about you, folks. It's never about us. We are encouraged to worship him. We are expected and we are commanded to worship him. But worship is due to him and to him alone. It's not about us. It will always be about the God who is. It will always be about the self-existent one. And we're just doing what is already, as I mentioned, due to him And to him alone. That's who we worship. That's who we worship. 
And our attitudes and our actions sometimes depict otherwise, and we know it. Of course we worship God. Of course we offer and render worship to God and God alone, the God of the Bible, the God of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham. But our actions don't. And we need to be reminded that this is who we worship. We know how to worship, but now we need to remember who we're worshiping. But we also know where to worship. And again, it might seem like it's obvious. But let me just unravel this momentarily. So now that we know, or you know how to worship, you know who to worship, what about where to worship? And let me ask a few questions. Is worship confined to just this gathering on a Sunday mornings? Or even Wednesday night? Is, 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 that, is worship confined to Sunday mornings, Wednesday night services, or any other corporate gathering that we might have throughout the week? Even deeper, when we gather like this, when we gather corporately, what aspect of that gathering or this gathering is considered worship? What is considered, what aspect of it is considered worship? What about Sunday mornings? Is worship only the part that for some churches they entitle it praise and worship? Is that the only part that is deemed worship? We know that worship is required by corporate gathering in this fashion. So obviously it's not only confined to just Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. The psalmist says come into his presence. What do we know about God's presence? Is it confined to just when we gather on Sunday mornings? So that should answer the question. So if you're coming in, and that's why I said the psalmist moved from worshiping in God's presence to worshiping in God's palace or his temple. So you come before his presence with all of the thing, all of the house of worship, with shoutfulness, with gladness, with singing, with thankfulness. And we know that God, as theologians put it, is omnipresent. Which means that worship should be a constant thing for his people. It shouldn't just be Sunday mornings. It should be a constant thing. David expressed in Psalm 139, verse 7 to 12, Where can I go? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the earth, you are there. Jesus Christ, when before he left, he said, Lo, I am with you, if I'm quoting the King James, always, even to the end of this age. We ought always to be in a joyful state of worship and gladness. But there is also obviously public aspect to worship. So there's a private setting where you gather together, whether it's as a family or you're going into your closet time to worship, to render worship to God. But we also gather like this. We gather in this fashion. And it's an anytime, anywhere worship 
to enter his gates and into his courts. Again, referring to the procession that is leading to the temple where God's people is going to corporately gather and shout praises to his name. What aspect of worship or gatherings do you define as worship? It should be all of it. So we worship in singing. We worship in giving. We worship in prayer. We worship in the word. We worship in partaking of the Lord's table. All of that, folks, is worship. All of that is worship, which means from start to finish, From beginning to end, your attitude should be one of worship. Worship for the believer shouldn't begin when Bill came up here and commenced his call to worship. That commenced the corporate, the public gathering of worship. When you enter that door, and this is how I picture it, When you come through those doors, you're exiting private worship of God from the week that has passed. And you're entering the corporate worship where you're worshiping God together with his people. That is how it ought to be. But do we always worship God? We don't even always worship him publicly in this fashion. We get so distracted and we get so caught up with self and so many other things. That we forget the who of our worship so many times. I need not, I need less, I need not mention when we are going through the busyness of the week. What, what is your worship? What does your worship look like? If we are always, we are commanded to always be in a state of worship. If we are always commanded to enter his presence with thanksgiving and praises. Do we really do that Monday to Sunday? Or do we reserve it? I'm going to go to church for a couple hours on Sunday, so I'll do it then. Worship is not confined, folks, to this gathering. It shouldn't be confined to this gathering. It shouldn't be confined to any corporate or public gathering of the church. It shouldn't be just confined to, oh, it's our family devotion time. Worship is an attitude that ought to be carried out on a daily basis. Moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day. Let me read this short Analogy from a little boy that went to church one Sunday morning. After attending church one Sunday, a little boy knelt at his bedside that night. And this is what he prayed. Dear God, we had such a good time at church today. But I wish you were there. I wish you were there. That is sad. And may that never be Westmount Bible Chapel. May that never be any little boy or girl that goes home and says, church was amazing today. I don't know what we were doing or who we were doing these things for, but I felt great. May that never be the individual that walks in and that is searching, wanting to see what do these believers, these so-called Christians find so enthusiastic about gathering on Sunday mornings. 
May that never be that individual that walks in and is seeking after God and wants to know a bit about the hope that is within us. And they leave church on Sunday morning and say, I have no clue what was going on in that church. They seem to be having a grand old time, but I have no idea what went on. May that never be us, folks. May that never be us. May people see, whether it's private or public, that we're constantly in a state of worshiping the God whom we serve. So we know how to worship. We know who to worship. We know where to worship. But why do we worship? Why do we make these boisterous, triumphant, joyful boastings about God? Why? Well, the psalmist tells us, know that God is good. But before we go to that, he says, know that he is God. Folks, we worship because he's God. That is due to him. And this command, and it is a command, he says, no, that is an imperative. You better get this straight. He is God. And this command is a denunciation of all other gods, not just the idols that are figurative in, in or have figures or have shape, but anything else that we elevate above God, whether it's sports or family or self, whatever it is, this statement where it says, know that he is God. We worship God because he is God. And that means nothing else or no one else comes before him. That is denouncing every other God. And of course, when talking to Israel, they would know full out what idolatry would look like. And they would get this point that we have to denounce everything else that is above the true and living God. And once you know who God is, folks, really, when you analyze this, once you know who God is, you cannot but worship him. Look and analyze God for yourself. He's worthy of our praises. He's worthy of your worship. We worship because he is God. We worship him because he is the creator God. He made us. He made you and I. You are not autonomous. You are not self-sufficient. You might think that, but you aren't. He made us. You are his creation. He is the creator. He created you and I for worship. And he calls us and he's demanding and he's commanding us to worship him. You worship him because he's God. You worship him because he made you. You're the re- he's the reason you're sitting here this morning. And even if you're not saved and you don't have this concept that I'm here because this all-powerful being created me, he created you, and that's why you're here. And you need to surrender your lives to him so that you can render and offer true worship that is due to him and to him alone. 
You worship him because he also redeemed you. The psalmist says we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Again, a reference directly to Israel, but by application to all those of us who are, Jesus, are a part of God's kingdom. He redeemed you and I. And again, unsaved friend, or friends, if you're here, that redemption is still available to you. It's still available to you. He provides for you. You worship him because of his provision. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Why do sheep go to pastures? They have food there, good food. They have drinking, good running water there. He provides for you. And this statement, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, implies two things. God is our shepherd. That is the obvious one. But the shepherd, again, who is God, will always provide for his sheep. Those are, these are the two implications in this text. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd, and being the good and the great shepherd, he will always provide for his sheep. Always provide. He will gather his lamb in his arm. He will gently lead his flock, according to Isaiah 40, verse 11. And of course, we know that Jesus Christ provided the greatest provision for mankind, and that is his sacrifice that he made on the cross for you and I. We worship God because he's good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? You don't know what good is, really. You have absolutely no idea. You have no basic concept of goodness because only God is good. And the psalmist is repeating that God is good and because of his goodness, we worship him. We worship him because of his steadfast love that endures forever, his covenant-keeping love. This is what this word means and I love this word. Absolutely love this word, steadfast love. It's a covenant-keeping love. And what do we know about covenants, especially in the context of God? They are yes and amen. His covenant-keeping love, his never-failing love. And in case you missed it, the psalmist is being redundant that endures forever. His steadfast love, he didn't have to say that, but just to place emphasis on the fact that we serve a God that is loving us eternally. And that ought to propel us and compel us to shout boisterously and worship him. And give him worship that is due to him and to him alone. And folks, this makes him the ever faithful, forever faithful God. We can always rely on him. Psalm 96 also says, verse 4 says, He is great and greatly to be praised. And that's another reason why we worship, worship him. What is worship? In your mind's eye, in your concept or definition, what is worship? What does worship look like to you? 
This is what A.W. Towser says in answering this question. Worship is to feel in your heart. There is the heart of the matter again. And express, so it's coming from inside. And express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring and awe and astonishment and wonder and wonder and overpowering love in the presence of the most ancient mystery. That majesty which philosophers call the first cause. But for you and I who are his people, we call him Father. We call him our Heavenly Father. That is worship and admiration and expression of awe and enthusiasm, enthusiasm and excitement that bubbles up from within our hearts. Again, if you're here and you're not saved and you have no clue what I'm talking about, you have no clue how to worship or to begin to worship. You have no clue as to who to worship. Even though by default you are worshiping something and someone. You don't know where to worship or why you worship or why to worship. Well, let me encourage you. Worship the God that created you. Worship the God that sent his son before the dawn of time, before the world began, before he laid the foundation, before he said, let there be light. The God that had planned and ordained for Jesus Christ to come into this world and provide the greatest sacrifice for sins so that you do not have to face face the wrath, the righteous wrath of God. So that you can stand before him justified because of the works of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means when God looks at you, when you surrender, when you bow your knees to Jesus Christ, the greatest provision for mankind, when you bow that knee to God, and when you stand before him and say, God, take me, I'm yours. And he looks at you. It means that when he sees you, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Because our righteousness, Isaiah said, is like the rags that the lepers would wrap themselves with. To get you a very, very disturbing visual of the filthy rags. But when you surrender your life to Christ and God looks at you, he sees you covered under the blood of his son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is how you begin to worship God. Bow your knees, surrender your lives to him. Believers, we who walk the walk, or we talk the talk, let us walk the walk. Let us know how to worship Let us know that our worship should be genuine and sincere and from the heart. Let us know that we worship him because of who he is. Let us know that our worship is not confined to when we gather on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. Let us worship him with every fiber of our being. And as we 
transition into the Lord's table. Another aspect of our worship. I want us to quiet our hearts as I read from an article from, from John Piper in term, and answering the why and the how of the Lord's table, or why we, how and why we celebrate the Lord's table. I want us to reflect on what Jesus Christ actually did for us as we are about to take or partake of the elements. So often we can find that we're, we're just seasonal beings. It's just by default, and the, the, the power of the cross only comes alive to us at Easter time. Is that not true? We, we don't reflect on the cross as much during the rest of the year, just like Christmas songs. How many of you have ever walked around singing joy to the world in the middle of the summer? Same thing with, it, with Easter. We don't send or have that reflection. And I want us to just take that moment. And you, I hope that you can listen to what I have to say while, while you're doing that reflection. He starts off with the historicity of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And of course it is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke. And um, John doesn't really mention it. All report the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he died. Each describes Jesus giving thanks or blessing the bread and giving the cup to his disciples. That the bread represents his body and the cup represents the blood of the new covenant. In Luke twenty two nineteen, Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember me. Do this to remember what I have done for you. Do this to remember the sacrifice that I made for you. So the historical origin of the Lord's Supper began with Jesus Christ the night before he was crucified. So the actions... And the meaning of it are rooted in Jesus Christ and all that he did for us on the cross. Jesus himself originated the Last Supper. Then Piper moves into the believing participants. And he emphasized that this is an act of a family gathering. Are the gathered family of those who believe in Jesus Christ. That is the church. It is not an act for unbelievers. Unbelievers may be present indeed, and they are welcome to be present. And there is nothing sacredive about the Lord's Supper. It is done publicly, as we will do momentarily, because it has a public meaning. It is not a secretive cultic ritual with magical powers, he writes. It is a public act of worship by the gathered church. And in fact, Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. So in the Lord's Supper, in us partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're presenting the gospel to our unsaved friends if they are joining us and are 
in the service. So we're proclaiming his death and we're doing so publicly. The mental action of the Lord's Supper, the participants, again, the mind is focused, is stayed, it's fixed on Jesus Christ, the work that he did especially on the cross for us. Died once, rose once, lives forever. And that is the God we serve. Died once, rose once, lives forever. And of course, there's a spiritual action as well. And this is the reason why we eat this bread and we drink this cup when we're remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. We are also anticipating that return of Jesus Christ. But we're also making sure that we are not partaking of this unworthily. There's a sacredness to the Lord's table, even though it's a public thing. It is taken corporately. Paul warns that we ought to be very careful not to partake unworthily. I want us to take a moment to reflect what Christ did for us. That work that accomplished salvation. That work that at the end he could say it is complete. It is done. This, folks, is why we worship God. If there's no other reason, you could have been battered and beaten and torn and be a pauper for your entire life and you live. It doesn't matter the fact that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die in your place, in my place. We shouldn't require any other reason to worship him than that. Let us reflect.